Now, just imagine for a moment that we all started to sing a song about you. And I'm not talking about happy birthday. I mean a full-on hymn of praise to you. It's a poetic summary of all the wonderful things you have done and how much you mean to us and how we adore you. And we all join in. And then we lead you to the front of the hall where we've set up this chair on a kind of elevated platform and dressed it up to look like a throne. And then we offer you a crown. And then Laura takes up a tambourine or something and she leads all the women in a song and dance routine with timbrels. And again, it's all about you. Now, does that situation sound a little bit awkward? If you're saying no, then you probably need to see a psychiatrist. (laughs) You know, this is what the Bible says we are supposed to do for God. Make a big fuss of him. Talk about him. Tell him how great he is. And it's exactly what happens in Exodus chapter 15. If you want to keep that passage open, we'll be spending our time there. The first song of the Bible. It's a song based on the experience of deliverance from Egypt, and it's a song of praise. Now, not only do people do this in the Bible a lot, they sing praise to God, more than that, the Bible teaches that God's whole purpose in making the universe and God's whole purpose in saving people to belong to him is to get praise. God is actively seeking glory. So in Exodus, we read a key statement back in chapter 9, verse 16, This is God's hidden agenda behind the whole uh, rescue mission. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 15, he says, By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God wants to be famous, to be acknowledged, to be glorified. That's the primary reason. And God is not blushing and embarrassed and feeling a bit uh, awkward when we sing his praises. He's not saying, oh, stop. (laughs) He wants to hear our songs. He accepts, he expects our praise. He even requires it. The Bible is full of commands to sing praises to God. Now, let's be real about this. Does that make God sound like a bit of an egotist? Does it make him sound, you know, insecure, like the person who is always looking for compliments? Some people have reached this conclusion. They find the idea of God wanting praise one of the hardest aspects of the Christian faith and even a barrier to faith. They ask, isn't the idea that God wants glory basically self-centered? And that is a great question. C.S. Lewis was a professor of English literature at Cambridge University. He came to faith in Jesus as an adult. He was a very reluctant convert. And he pondered this question deeply. He writes that it was a real struggle for him to accept the demand that we praise God. In his mind, it came close to the sort of ridiculous, horrible demand of a dictator or a vain celebrity that they want everyone to look at them and insist on being surrounded by a crowd of sycophants. But Lewis eventually had a breakthrough. He realised that it was not only right to praise God, but actually essential and beautiful. He said there are three reasons for this. Firstly, we all know that admiration is a fitting response to that which is admirable. If something is admirable, we praise it. 
If we see a magnificent painting, we praise it. It deserves, it demands our admiration because that's the correct response to it. If we fail to admire such a painting, Lewis says, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. Losers. I don't think Lewis would have done that. He said, because we will have missed something. So there are many things in life that demand our admiration. Mountains, sunsets, works of art, splendid achievements in sport, and people of great talent, people of great beauty. They draw out our admiration. The incomplete and crippled lives of those who are tone deaf, who have never been in love, who have never known true friendship, who have never cared for a good book, who have never enjoyed the feel of the morning air on their cheeks, who have never enjoyed football, are images of it. But there's more than that. Lewis asked, how do we, human beings, experience the presence of God? And he realised that most of the time, we experience God's presence when we worship him together. It's not the only time, it's not the only place, but it seems to be the main one. In the Old Testament, people would bring bulls and goats to God. But the main point of that sacrifice is not that we have to give something to God, but because when we do that, God gives himself to us. And the same thing is true of the Christian church. As we bring our sacrifice of praise, do you know what this is about? More times than I can remember, it's when we're praising God together here on a Sunday morning that things just become clear to me. That I sense God's touch on my life. That my perspective is set right again. The biggest reason that I hate missing church is not because I feel obligated to go. Some kind of duty. The biggest reason I hate missing church is that I miss out. Because I need you. And together we experience the presence of God. But you know, there's a third thing about praise that C.S. Lewis found out. He said that all enjoyment, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless it's held back by shyness or fear. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favourite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favourite game. Praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, cars, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and <laughs> scholars. We delight to praise what we enjoy. Why is this? Because the enjoyment is not complete without the praise. It's not out of a compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. How frustrating it is to hear a really good joke and not have anyone to share it with. How frustrating to be on a walk and come unexpectedly round the bend and see a glorious mountain valley and then have to keep silent because the people with you don't appreciate it. So Lewis realised this basic fact. Praise completes our enjoyment of something good. And the more worthy the object, the more intense the delight would be. Now when you look at it like that, praising God isn't just a duty or a demand, which it is. It's also a delight. It's a delight. It's as fitting for us to worship God as it is for a flower to turn its face towards the rising sun and look at it all day long, basking in the glory of its rays. 
Now, Exodus chapter 15, this song of Moses and Miriam, or the song at the sea, as it's traditionally known, is a song about deliverance, but it is really a model for praise. (coughs) It's a song that doesn't give us much new information. Jez, uh, last week, preached about the deliverance through the Red Sea. And this now, having gone through that, the Israelites sing this song as a celebration of all that God has done. And it is a great response to salvation, to sing. Now, we all sing, you know, the postman whistling his tune in the morning, the worker humming in the office to the radio, the football fans yelling, blue moon, (laughs) you saw me standing alone. I can't remember what the Man United song is, sorry. The starry-eyed teenager trilling the latest torch song from Adele, we all sing. The question is, whose song are we singing? Exodus chapter 15 teaches us how to sing. It teaches us how to reorient our lives around a new song. Henry David Thoreau famously wrote, if a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. And God's people need to hear a different drummer march to a different song. We need to step to the music we hear. And here it is, Exodus chapter 15, shows us How to respond to God's salvation. So the song of salvation has four aspects. I'm going to go through these really fast. Firstly, celebration, then adoration, then proclamation, then anticipation. Celebration, adoration, proclamation, and anticipation. Celebration, verses 1 to 10. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. This song celebrates two aspects of God. He's a warrior and a savior. The warrior, the divine warrior, crushing his people's enemies. Now, this is not some kind of jihad, holy war, or crusade sort of image. There is no requirement here for God's people to attack enemies. God is the one doing the fighting. He's the shield. He's the one that takes up arms. And he's the one rescuing his people because he's the savior. He hears his people's need. He sees them in their depth of despair and distress. And he takes up their cause. Their plight is not far from him. He takes it into his great heart. He lets it in. He turns his attention to them and he pours himself into their rescue. He will not let them go. He will not see them overwhelmed and defeated. He's the warrior and he's the saviour. Now in this song, By the Sea, it is not abstract. It is historical. It's something they've experienced and it's deeply personal. He has become my saviour. So let me ask you, can you sing this? Do you know this? Have you experienced this great God as the warrior and the saviour? Have you understood what Jesus Christ has done to defeat your enemies and pour himself out for you? He's a warrior who defeated those things that crushed you and took away your life. Your sin, which is a slave master, which robbed you of light and joy. Your bondage to self and relentlessly thinking about yourself, which takes away your freedom and your joy. Your hopelessness, which he has now smashed by giving you a new hope. Your isolation, 
Whereas you were far away, you've now been brought near and included in his family. Have you experienced any of those things? Do you know that Jesus Christ is the warrior? Have you felt the touch of his Holy Spirit on your heart, bringing these things to life, making them real? Have you heard the word of God and realized, Jesus Christ did all this for me? Do you know enough to celebrate? But you know, if we only sang about what God had done for us, we wouldn't be worshipping fully. Because there's more. There really is more. Just think of a child who only praises his mother because of what she does for him. Fuller praise moves beyond that. And it moves to praising somebody just for who they are. And that's what happens in this song. The second movement is adoration. Verses 11 to 13. Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. Awesome in glory. Working wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfading love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Now here we see this adoration of God, who he is. He's peerless. Incomparable. There's no one like him. He's majestic in holiness. He's a great king, but like no other. He's awesome in his glorious deeds, his deeds of creation, of making the the wonderful world that we live in, his deeds of governance, of keeping it all running, and his deeds of salvation and rescue. He works wonders. He is altogether wonderful. Now notice the song's perspective. In chapter 14, we read that a strong east wind blew And it blew back the waters. Here we have God uh, piled the waters up with the blast of his nostrils. It's a fairly intimate image. Was it the east wind or the nostrils? It's both. But in the song's perspective, God is at work behind the movements of creation. In chapter 14, we read that Moses held up his arms and his staff and the waters parted. But here we have God's hand is the mighty hand that saved the people. So God uses the strong wind and he uses Moses. But these singers have got new eyes. They now realize who's behind it all. They see the hand of God at work in the world and in their lives and they adore him for it. And we, I think, will need a lot of time in prayer and a lot of time in meditation if we're going to see the world like these people. If we're to get these new eyes. This is a long-term project. There's never been a time in history, has there, when all the private spaces in our lives and all the little windows of time get filled up with other voices and other songs as we are constantly interacting with the world through smartphones and tablets and various devices and there's almost no private time left and other voices are constantly talking and pressing in and filling our thoughts we will need to focus our minds and thoughts on the Lord if we're going to get this kind of new eyes and heart that adores him we need this song to reorient us so that we march to a different drummer. And you know, the third thing about this is it's not just meant for you and me. The song of salvation isn't just meant for the community of faith. It's actually for the nations. Because the third thing we learn here about how to sing is that it's proclamation. It's publishing abroad the good news about what God has done for me. Verses 14 to 16. The nations will hear tremble 
Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Eden will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. You see, they will acknowledge that God is real and there is no other. They will see him for the greatness of who he is. These nations that are listed here were the ones that the Israelites were going to meet when they entered the promised land. And they're listed in the geographical order that they would encounter them. So this song is reassuring them. God is real. He's with you. He's on your team. He's going ahead of you. And he will show the nations that he is God. Now we know, as the people of Jesus Christ, that the ultimate goal of all this is not just that the nations will be terrified, but that they will learn to love God and come into his kingdom, as many people did, even in Egypt. The recounting of God's praises should have an impact on everybody around. So when we live lives of praise to King Jesus, others will see and be curious. Now, at first, they might be skeptical. They may think you're a bit crazy. But some of them will be drawn to the warmth of our praise, like lost children coming out of the woods towards the home fires. In this song at the sea, the nations are led to fear and acknowledge God. And that's the goal of worship, that there will be more and more worshippers. So let's make sure that our lives of worship, Christian friends, are visible to the watching world. That we don't hide our praise under a bucket for fear of rejection or disapproval. Let's bear up the great name of Jesus in praise wherever we are, in the office, in the classroom, among the mums over coffee, in our community groups, at the pub, at the shops, in our homes, ready to speak his praise when the moment comes. But there's more. Because the song doesn't end there, it ends with anticipation. This song is not static but dynamic. It's looking back to what God has done and looking forward to what he will do. Here it is in verses 17 and 18. The anticipation. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. They're looking forward, these people who've been rescued from slavery, they're looking forward to a new home, a place where righteousness dwells. They've been rescued. They themselves are a new creation. They've been brought through the waters on the dry land. The Spirit of God has seen the whole process. They're going to a new Eden. The enemies have been buried in the chaos waters. They are a new creation, and they now belong to another country. They're on the journey home. And they look forward to a city with foundations. They are going home. On the 6th of February... 1999, I knelt down by a river with a diamond ring in my pocket and asked a young woman to marry me. Thankfully, she said yes. That ring was a pledge of my good intentions and she wore it from that day on. A date was set, 14th of August, 1999, for a wedding. And we spent six months in frantic planning and eager anticipation. Oh, to be married at last. Now, that's my wife, that's my wife cackling. She's still in the room, so I've got to be careful here. Marriage is a great blessing. <laughs> and what a privilege uh, to have such a companion. But uh, somebody's ringing up. Did he really say that? 
But ask any married person here, and I suspect they would say the same thing, if they were being honest. Human marriage is not the ultimate fulfillment. <laughs> Human marriage is not ultimately fulfilling. It's, it is not what we were made for. It is not the consummation that we devoutly wish for. At its best, on its best day, human marriage is a picture. It's a little scale drawing. It's a model of the real marriage. The real consummation, the marriage between God and his people that we really are looking forward to at the end of time, when we are united to him and we see him as he is, face to face. And the old order of things passes away. And there's no more sorrow or mourning or sickness or tears. That's what we're looking forward to, Christian friends. And until that day, we're going to be people of the book and people of song. Singing songs of celebration, adoration, proclamation and anticipation. Now that's Moses and Miriam and the Israelites. What about us? The church, Jesus Christ. What's our song? Dare I say it, we've got a better one. We've been rescued from the Egypt of our slavery to sin and we've been brought through the sea. We're en route to a new and better country. So we have participated in an act of God that is far greater even than the Exodus. It's the new Exodus of Jesus Christ accomplished by his death. That is God's climactic act of rescue. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, his humble, astonishing entry into our world, into our lives, taking on even our flesh, in his nature, embracing us, a complete identity with who we are. We celebrate the life of Jesus, his passionate, absolutely pure and holy, completely loving, strong, tender and gracious life, the kind of life we should have lived but never could have. We celebrate the death of Jesus, his willing, laying down his life for the lost, the strong for the weak, to bring praise to God. He became our Passover lamb. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, in which death is decisively defeated and a guarantee of eternal life is offered to everyone who is united with Christ. We celebrate the ascension of Jesus, in which he is enthroned as Messiah, and now he sends his spirit into the world to build the church from every nation and take the good news to all creation. That's our song. That's our song, friends. So let me close with a question. Whose song are you singing? Now, I wasn't here last week or the week before. I've been on a, an amazing trip uh, to the Far East, to Korea and China. And last Sunday, I was at a church in the middle of downtown Seoul in a, an, just the most astonishing building I think I've ever been in. The church has 90,000 members. That's nine zero. 90,000 members and a $250 million building in the middle of Seoul. Some of the most influential people in Korean society are members there. Last Sunday, they baptized 473 people over four services. In a main sanctuary room that can seat 7,000 and is 40 meters below street level. South Korea has got 50 million people about, over 10 million of them are, are Christians. And they are amongst the most missional people in the world. They want to reach the whole world. Now you're thinking, why was I there? I was asking myself that question. Because I've become involved in a, a 
Theological College in Wales that has a vision to make the gospel and training available to everyone in Europe. And that church in Seoul has the same vision. Korean Christians committed to sharing the gospel with Europe and investing wholeheartedly in that, that project. Now, outside that building is a juniper tree, beautiful old uh, Korean traditional tree. That tree is 300 years old. And when it was planted, it made me think, when it was planted, I don't think there was a single Korean follower of Jesus Christ. Now there are over 10 million. How did that happen? Just over 100 years ago, a Welsh missionary called Robert Germain Thomas travelled from China to Korea. He uh, went on an armed trading ship. He'd been spending some time to learn about the language and culture. He was looking forward to a new life, uh, sharing the gospel with the Korean people who didn't know Christ. But those in charge of the ship he was on acted foolishly and a violent conflict developed between them and the people on the shore. Robert Germain Thomas got out of the boat, waded to the shore, but was beaten to death by a furious crowd. He died as soon as he began. He'd barely set foot in the country and his mission was over. But his dying act was to hand his Bible to the mob. And the story goes that a local man tore the pages out of the Bible and used them to wallpaper his house. Years later, people read those pages. They came to believe in the God that Robert Germain Thomas had followed. And now the church in South Korea is one of the strongest in the world. Korean Christians are committed to sharing the gospel with Europe. And last Sunday morning, people from Africa, Europe and Asia joined together at the end of the noonday service to sing the praise of our glorious God. And they sang a song that I think we know. How great is our God. It's a song of salvation. A song that they are singing today. As they are committed to spreading the good news of Jesus Christ all over the world. So let me close with a question. Friend, whatever spiritual state you came in here today. And I know we've all come from different places. Whatever's going on in your heart and mind at this stage. Uh, maybe things even that nobody else knows. Let me ask you, when, when all the music's off, when you're on your own, when it's quiet, what's playing in there? Whose song are you singing? Will you sing the song of salvation? Will you sing the song that celebrates Jesus Christ, that adores him, that proclaims his greatness and anticipates his future return where we will go to a better home? God bless you and all of us as we seek to live and sing that song in our generation. Let's pray. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. And we sing this song of Moses, and we sing the song of the Lamb, and say, thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us, all that we didn't deserve, all the love that you've set upon us, how you've set your mighty heart on us and won't let us go. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and empower us today to live for you this week wholeheartedly for the glory of Jesus and for our good. We pray these things in his strong and mighty name. Amen. Amen.